Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this great opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us in what you'd have us to see in this. In your son's precious name, amen. All right, Ezekiel chapter 38. We're continuing the prophecy of the great battle that's going to come against Israel. And last week we talked a little bit about the debates on whether this time fits in. Some people try to put it in Armageddon, but that doesn't fit with chapter 39. Uh, Some try to put it in the middle of the tribulation period. I believe that it's at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus returns to to defend Israel. So uh, <clears throat> that's where I believe it is, and you take that for what it's worth. <laughs> but uh, we're going to continue this. We start in verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people Israel dwell safely, shall you not know it? And you shall come from a place, your place out of the north parts, you and many people with you, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And you shall come against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. And as the, in the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in you, O God, before their eyes. Thus saith the Lord God, you are he of whom I have spoken in old times of by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring you against them. And it shall come to pass in that same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beast of the field and, the, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him throughout my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood and rain upon him with the, his bands upon the many people that are in him and overthrowing rain and great hailstones fire and brimstone thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord I think it's when Jesus returns that this is all what it's referring to Well, yeah, it's, they're going to be attacking Israel. Because in the previous verses, we talked about how all these nations were going to come against Israel. And we're going to tie into some of the book of Revelation as we go through this tonight. Uh, but it starts out with, you know, when my people Israel dwell safely, you shall not know it, and you shall come in from your place out of the north parts, and many people with you, all of them riding horses, a great company, and a, and a mighty army. And this is kind of where Israel is right now. They're virtually dwelling safely. You know, we, we've kind of talked about this in places. Most people that go to Israel say it's, they feel very safe in Israel. Uh, even though we hear on news all the time about all the, the bombings and attacks and everything, most people say they feel safe in Israel. And like everything else we watch on the news, it's sensationalized, and they only give you the worst parts of it, and they make things sound really bad. If you've ever lived in a town where violence is supposed to reign, and you watch the national news on newscasts, and you think, boy, my city's falling apart, but you, never, you don't usually see all the, all the things that they're putting on the news. Uh, every once in a while, you'll see something. But you know, especially in our day of 24-hour news, Everything is bad. Everything is bad. Everything is bad. And you, and you go, I'm, n- I'm never going to that place. You know, nothing but bad stuff happened there. Well, it really isn't that bad compared to other places probably. And it says Israel is dwelled in safety, and he will move out of the north. Gog and Magog are basically Russia. <laughs> Russia, Persia, uh, Gomer, the... Uh, which is Europe, and we've talked about all those places in the map we gave you last week. Uh, Turkey, India, and, and China. All these places will be moving against Israel at this particular time. And we, that has not happened that the whole world has come against Israel yet. 
but it will happen. And basically, when in my title last week's message, I go the second, the second to last great, great battle, because this is what it's talking about. When Jesus returns, and the enemies are coming to Israel, and he comes on the white horse of Revelation and delivers his people and sets up the millennial kingdom. And this is going to be the great, great battle. And he just speaks a word. He says a sword comes from his mouth, and the battle's over. They turn, they turn, their, turn their weapons on him, and he speaks. You know, very quick war, <laughs> as far as God's concerned. Uh, very quick war. They, they turn against him, and he just kills them all. And when they talk about him coming on the war today, it's the same way. Is that a literal thing, or is that part of the poetry of the writing? Jesus riding on a white horse is probably more literal than anything else. In history, the king that comes riding in on a white horse is coming in as the conqueror. So it's probably literal. Now, when it talks about the entire armies co coming in on horses, I don't know if that's literal, because the Hebrew word can also mean swift. So it could be the modern-day Calvary-type idea of vehicles and doesn't know how. To, there's no reason for it not to be literal. There's certain things in the Bible that we have to take as symbolic and poetic. First rule is that if it can be taken literal, you take it literal. If it obviously cannot be literal or it's very obvious in the writing that it's not literal, then you take it in the symbolism that it is. Uh, because as soon as you take and get rid of rule number one that the Bible is literal unless it can't be understood literally, you can make the Bible say whatever you, whatever you feel like saying it, because you go, well, that's just a symbol. The Jehovah's Witness do that with 144,000 Jews, even though it's very clear in the Bible that it's 12,000 from each tribe. They say, well, it doesn't mean, it's not really 12,000 from each 12, it's just 144,000 followers of God. Here we see, when Jesus rides back on the white horse, I believe it's a white horse that he'll come on, you know, whether it's a spiritualized horse or a flying, you know, how, how that works, I don't know. It just says he's coming back on a white horse. So I don't know how that's going to work. All I know is that he says it's on a white horse and we'll be following him on white horses. So I don't know whether that is absolutely literal or if it's figurative, but I can picture it being literal. So to me, it's going to be literal. Um, and again, when you're looking at scripture, if it makes sense to be literal, take it literally, all right? Unless it's very obvious in the scriptures that, that it's not literal. When the Psalms say that God wants to wrap his, uh, wrap his arms around us like a, like a chicken with a, a bird with its wings, you know, that is not saying that God is a bird with wings trying to wrap his ar arms around us. It is very clearly in that case a, you know, when it says like, it's telling us that it's a metaphor. So we need to be very careful when we look at it. When something is very obvious that it is a, you know, a figure of speech or a metaphor, we take it as such. Uh, but if it's something that can be taken literal, we're better off taking it literally unless God very clearly tells us that it's not. Because once you start spiritualizing or symbolizing everything in the Bible, the Bible becomes a worthless book because you can make it say whatever you want because you just say, well, this doesn't really mean this. This, this is a symbol, means this, 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 and it makes sense literally, accept it as literal. And if it's a very obvious symbol, it should be other, used other places in the Bible just in the same way, all right? When it talks about the dragon, we know that the dragon refers to Satan because that's where he's, how a dragon is used all through the scriptures. Uh, so we can look at these things and say, oh, yes. When he talks about the horns uh, on, on the animals, it almost always refers to power and dominion of a kingdom. So we take that and it's all over the place. So we go, okay, here is a symbol that we can understand. And it says a great army is going to come. And he says they're going to be called in the latter days out of the north. And he says... In verse 16, and you shall come against my people Israel as a cloud that covers the land, and it shall be in the latter days I will bring you against my land that the heathen may know that I shall be sanctified in you, O God, before their eyes. And it starts talking about how they'll come as a cloud covers the land, speaking of how large they are, how many there will be, pictures of the locusts that cover, cover the entire land like a cloud. They're coming with speed in vehicles. If you've ever seen vehicles crossing a desert area or, or land that's dry, you get a great cloud that's covering. So I think that's part of it as well. 
He says in verse 16, he goes, I will move you against my people. You know, one of the things that we kind of want to think about, you know, that God will always protect us and have no bad things ever happen to us. Well, when we say that, we'd have to define what bad is because God says that all things work together for good. But lots of things that appear bad happen to his people. This moving of the entire world against Israel is going to look bad to Israel. You know, little tiny Israel and every, every nation is moving against them is going to be kind of a scary event. But God is driving them to show the power of God. He's going to show his power when he conquers them, when he destroys them. And you know, this is what happens when God puts things that we consider bad in our life is basically so that we can depend on him and watch his power deliver. And this is when I find in my life, I, these things come along and I get to watch God deliver. And it's fun. It's fun to watch him. It's not necessarily fun to be in the middle of it, unless you know that he's going to do, you know, that he will do what's good. But, you know, we need to be very careful. It starts out with what is our attitude toward what's going on. And this is one of the things I will usually try to say is when things when bad things happen, it is usually when bad things seem to happen to us. Because over the long run, God's going to work good from what it is. And it makes us trust him. And it exercises our faith. It exercises our trust in him and makes us stronger in the process. And we've all, you know, I've talked many times, you know, if somebody wants to bulk up their body and lift weights, they've got to lift a weight that's going to be difficult to lift. Uh, and I've examined, you know, I take this little you know, one ounce pen, I could lift this pen all day long and for long periods of time and it's not going to bulk my muscles. <laughs> you know, there's not enough weight there to do anything. And we want to be able to understand God moves the enemy against us just as he did in Job's day. You know, remember when Job was being tempted, it was God who pointed Job out to Satan. Satan, have you considered Job? <laughs> that is not in my belief, an unusual thing. I think God does that with all of his people, and this verse indicates this. I, he says, I am going to move you, Gog and you kingdoms of the north, against my people. Why? So that he can be exalted. So that he can be sanctified. He's going to say, I'm going to move you against him, and then I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> and this is what he's done all through history. You watch what God does all through history, where enemies will come, the people turn to God, and God delivers them through conquest, usually. The book of Ju Judges is all about that. How God would come in, the people would sin, he'd send an enemy in, they'd repent, and he'd come in and deliver them. And he does that in our life all the time. We start having troubles, and maybe we deserve them, maybe we don't. But either way, he comes in and says, I'm going to test you. Are you going to follow me? And if you do... I'm going to show you my deliverance right away. If you don't trust me, I'll show you my deliverance later on. When you do repent. <laughs> and the good news is, God's going to deliver us either way if we're his children. Now, the greatest deliverance and the best deliverance will be when he takes us home. And then we don't have to worry about any more trials because we've gone home. But until that point, it's going to be a constant set of trials and battles that we go through. And we want to keep this in mind. It is not necessarily that we are, have sinned or deserve the trouble we're going through. Because how many times have you heard, well, you're just getting what you deserve? Well, maybe on one sense, but at the same time, God is testing and trying. He says, there is no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. So even when we go through things, we want to remember, number one, Satan's lie is, you're the only person that's going through this. Never buy into that lie, because it's a lie. Ecclesiastes tells us over and over there's nothing new under the sun, and that includes temptations. And Satan loves to make us feel isolated. Well, if people just knew, knew what you were going through, they, and nobody else is going through that, they, they would think you were just a terrible person. And then we buy into that, and we try to pull away from it. And then when you finally do get back to God, and you start sharing your testimony, he goes, oh, yeah, I go through that. And if you'd only known when you were going through it, it would make it a whole lot easier because you're, you can find people to pray with. You can say, oh, I'm not the only one that 
has these wicked, awful thoughts or has these crazy things happen to me. It happens to everybody. And it's God moving the enemy to do things to test us. And it's very important to understand, and this comes down to what is my worldview? Is my worldview a biblical, godly worldview? Or am I stuck in the world's way of thinking? When I'm in God's way of thinking, I know that he's going to work all things for good. I know that he's sovereign. And I know that he's probably the one that's moved the enemy to test me. And that gives me a lot of ability to be able to say, okay, God, I'm just going to relax in you. There's great freedom in having a biblical worldview to the activities that are coming your way. Doesn't mean I just sit back and do nothing and let, you know, let things happen, but it is, God, you are in control. And when God's in control, he's got a plan. Yeah, they all had a plan. They all had a reason. What all those reasons were, I don't know for some of them. Uh, for, this, for the World War II, it was to deliver, help deliver Israel because Satan was trying to destroy the Jewish people. And God moved against them, moved against Hitler on that. Uh, so what is the reason behind everything? God never tells us he's going to tell us what the reasons are. I don't know that Job really ever understood the reasons why he went through what he went through. All he knew is I've, my whole life's fallen apart, and then God says, I'm going to bless you. And I don't know that God ever said, you know, Job, uh, it was me who sent Satan your direction. I'm the one that pointed you out. And there's nothing in, this, in, the, in the story to tell us that that was ever understood by Job. So, well, the first time he heard it, he probably wouldn't have taken it very well. Uh, we probably wouldn't either, unless... We believed in the sovereignty of God to begin with. Yeah, I have. I learned the hard way not to use Romans 8:28 when somebody's going through a hard time because they got mad at me. Now, if somebody reminded me of Romans 8:28 when I'm in the middle of it, it would make you give me great comfort. But I probably already thought about it because that is the way I the way I think, and I'm going okay. But if you either believe God's word when you go into a situation and it becomes great comfort, and if you don't believe it as you go into, the com into it, it's not going to comfort you when you're in the middle of it. To tell somebody who's lost a loved one that God takes pleasure in the death of his saints <laughs> is not going to comfort them if they didn't believe it before they started into that process. Okay. So this is why we need to get a good, strong, biblical view, worldview before we get into the problems. Because if I come into that situation, okay, God, when my sister died, I told the pastor, I go, I cannot feel sad for her because she's in the presence of God. And he goes, I understand what you're saying, but you know, he goes, we need to show comfort to the others because they don't understand that. To me, it was very real. She's gone to be with heaven. She's, she's home with God. There's nothing to be really sad about. When things bad appear to happen, I'm going, God, you promised that all things work together, and you're sovereign, and you're in control. And because I completely 100% believe those, it doesn't usually take me long in the middle of a hard trial to say, God, don't know what's going on, but you've promised, and I'm going to hold on to your promise. And it is a great comfort. Whatever, whatever God gives you in the word of God, use those verses when things happen. Because he's in control. He moves the enemy against us to try us. He wants to see, is our worldview a godly, biblical-centered worldview, worldview, or is it a worldly worldview? And the world says, you're just having bad times, or karma, you're reaping what you sow, or there's no test involved in it. You've you got to grin and bear it. You've been dealt a bad hand. You've just had a bunch of a streak of bad luck, whatever, whatever it is. And you know how how fatalistic that must be to have to go through everything you go through with. Oh, I'm just having a long run of bad luck. You know, woe is me. You know, instead of God's got a plan and He's going to work work something good out of all this. And this is why here He says, "I am moving you against my people." He said when. 
Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdoms, he goes, it's because of Israel's sin, Assyria, that I have chosen you to conquer my people. When Babylon came in and conquered Judah, it was because of their sin. And God says, you've sinned, you're, you're now going to be disciplined. Now, in, Ju in Babylon's case, he said, to, told the Jewish people, you're only going to be in captivity for 70 years. Now, most of them forgot that. Matter of fact, Daniel had forgotten it until the Medo-Persian Empire took it up. And then he says in Daniel, I was reading the scriptures and I came across this verse that said you were going to be in captivity for 70 years. And then he went to another place and saw that Cyrus was going to be the deliverer. And guess who the king's name was when, when he read that verse? It was Cyrus. God has a plan and he has a purpose for everything that comes our way. And even when it looks as crazy as this, the whole world coming against little Israel so that he could prove his deliverance of them. Satan trying to destroy Israel. We've talked about this. Satan wants to destroy Israel. Why? Because if he can get rid of Israel, then he can prove that God doesn't know the future because Israel will not is the whole centerpiece all the way through the millennial kingdom. So his goal right now before Jesus was to get rid of Israel so that Jesus would not be born because the Messiah had to be born from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he tried to get rid of Israel over and over and over again, and God would not let him. His, and everything in the future is literally because Ezekiel, Daniel, um, uh, <coughs> Revelation, and all these books talk about Israel being the centerpiece of all of prophecy into the future. So his goal is get rid of Israel. If he can get rid of Israel, God's prophecies become false. And he goes, okay, you're not God because you lied. You didn't know the future. Now, why, why he thinks he can defeat God, I don't know, but it's his goal. But God says, I will be sanctified in them before your eyes. And then he says, verse 17, thus saith the Lord, are you of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring you against them. And it shall come to pass in the same time that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury may come to my face. All right? So God says he's spoken about this. Now, Gog has never been mentioned in any of the other prophets by name other than here. But he is over and over again prophesied that an enemy will come and will attack Israel. Over and over again he's talked about this great time of Jacob's trouble is what it usually says. And it is a really uh, big deal that he says this, this is coming. Israel will have this time of trouble. And we've seen them be taken into captivity twice. We saw Rome capture them, but it never raised to the level of the whole world against them that they talk about over and over again. And so God says, I'm going to let this happen. And why, in verse 18? So that my fury shall come to my face. <laughs> he just said, I'm going to be the one that sends you, and when you come, I'm going to get angry that you're coming. Yeah, which is kind of, we see the same talk in Pharaoh. When God is judging Pharaoh with the ten plagues, it starts out the first three or four plagues where Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then it says from that point on, God hardened his heart so that he would get to the end where he was going to kick them out with all the fury that he had. And there is this point where God knows what's going to happen. And he knows these countries want to go against him, so he just moves them to go against them so that he can show his hand. And we see this over and over through history. The Christian church, through all the different times that it has been um, persecuted over and over, where it looked like it was going to be destroyed because it had such heavy persecution, so that God could show his hand as he delivers his people. It's pretty amazing when, when God delivers you and you use that as your testimony and people start coming to God because of your testimony of how God delivers you through the hard times. And I love it that God delivers through the hard times and that he makes it easy to go through these things. And I've said it over and over again, if you start looking at God and saying, God, you've got a plan and your eyes are focused on God, sometimes you don't even notice the hard times that, until you kind of look back and going, oh, what's all that storm damage back there? 
you know, was there a storm? <laughs> and you know, I've had people tell me, you know, you've really had a rough life, and I don't feel like I've had a rough life because God has been in charge of it. And I really honestly don't think, but I've had some of my family members, you've gone through this, you've gone through that, you've gone through this, and I'm going, okay, if you say so. You know, I just don't look at it as being that hard in most cases because my eyes try to stay focused on God as much as possible. And here he says, I'm going to send this enemy against you. <laughs> I'm going to send this enemy. Why? So that I can get mad at him and destroy him. <laughs> uh, and this is why I believe it's also at the end of the tribulation period because that's when Jesus comes back. And remember, when Jesus comes back, he is no longer the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the mighty king ruler of everything. You know, when he comes back to rule the millennial kingdom, it says he rules with an iron rod, all right? which means he makes people obey. All right? It isn't his grace and his mercy keeping them. It is he comes and he says, you will obey. How will he obey? with an iron rod, the rod, the scepter of iron that's discipline and harsh. And, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things going on in our day and age. We talk about the thought police and how many people are charged with crimes for, you know, you're now charged oftentimes with a hate crime. You, you didn't just hurt this person, but you hated them. And because you hated them, it drove you to, to harm them. Well, I don't know if anybody's ever harmed anybody that didn't hate them in the first place, other than maybe a you know, literal accident. But, you know, but now we have this little extra charge. If, it, if it's against the wrong group, you now have a hate crime. And God will actually be somebody who can understand the thoughts. He knows the thoughts, thoughts and intents of our hearts. You know, during the Millennial Kingdom, I can picture him, you know, somebody thinking about doing something wrong and having an angel pop at the door and say, uh, you know, knock, 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 nope, you're not doing this. <laughs> you, know, you are not going to be disobedient for the millennial kingdom. You're going to reign, it's going to be a time of very righteous, people's lives are going to be extended. It says that if somebody lives to be only 300 years old, they'll die as a child. According to that scripture, people in the millennial kingdom are supposed to live for the millennial kingdom, the 1,000 years. And... Uh, so he says all these things, and he says, it has come to pass that fury will be on my face, verse 9, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beast of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground." This is a big earthquake. <coughs> this is a huge earthquake that he's talking about. Want to look at uh, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I'm not even going to ask you to try, to try to find Haggai because it's right before Zechariah. And it says, For you, thus saith the Lord, yet once it shall be in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the desired nations shall come and I will fill his house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The desire of nations is Jesus. Okay, he's the desire of nations. And God says on that last day, right before that battle, just as he did in Ezekiel, that there will be a great shaking. Uh, Revelation chapter 16, starting at verse 17. This is toward the end of the tribulation period. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and, and there came a great voice in, out of the temple of heaven and from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as has not been seen, uh, not since men were upon the earth, so mighty the earthquake and so great, that the great city was divided into three parts, and the nations fell, and the great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto the fear, here cup the of wine and the fierceness, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. They fell upon man, great hill out of the heaven, and every stone about the weight of a talent. The men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail and the plague upon which the, was exceedingly great. So Isaiah talks about this same earthquake. The mountains fall. The walls fall. That is a big earthquake. God, that's a God-sized earthquake. <laughs> And then it, it talked about the hailstones, which we're going to look into a little later, but it says that they were, in Revelation, it says the hail was a, 
was a talent in weight. Well, if it's gold, a talent is approximately 100 pounds. If it's silver, it's approximately 200 pounds. Now, can you imagine a hillstone falling up down from the sky? That'll be the death of many. That'll be the, the well, the earthquake's going to cause death. You know, it's, uh, buildings are going to fall. All of our earthquake-proof buildings <laughs> on an earthquake that's big enough to make the mountains fall and the islands collapse and, and everything, most of the country in the world are going to fall into ruin. And it's a good thing it's right at the end when Jesus is going to set the millennial kingdom up and allow a peaceful reign because can you imagine the terror and the, and the looting and everything else that will go on at that point? because everything is gone. And Revelation will continue to go on how Babylon falls and how the economic system falls and, and all the things that happen because of this great fall and earthquake. So God is shaking the world more to show people that he is God and maybe supernaturally keeping them alive to, to be able to see him. The, the hailstones are after the earthquake and you know the, think about the damage that is done by golf-sized hailstones or this or what we're getting into baseball and softball size you know that really do damage to things you know, nothing compared to a 200 you know 100 200 pound uh, hailstone falling I can't even imagine here we have this statement by God that there's going to be a great earthquake and as Revelation said as it has never been seen by man and the scary thing is we're starting to see bigger and bigger earthquakes with each passing generation, each passing year, we're starting to see large earthquakes. We're starting to see earthquakes, just as Jesus said, in diverse places. Our world is starting to shake. And part of that is because it is reaching the end, end times and God spun it into existence, slowing down ever since. And we're seeing just as a top when it's spun, when it starts slowing down, it wobbles on the axis before it finally collapses. Our earth is in that stage. Now, God's not going to let it collapse because he's got the millennial kingdom to come, but it's going to slow down. And God can spin it again. That's not a problem to God, just as we can pick up a top and spin it, spin it as many times as we want and let it fall down as many times as it, as it wants or needs to. We see this earthquake-prone world getting worse. And God says there's going to be an earthquake that is a phenomenal earthquake. And that would include the shifting of the axis and all that stuff that they talk about. And it's actually been proph uh, prophesied, predicted by scientists, that the axis is going to shift dramatically because of the wobble that it's starting to have. And God tells us that it's going to happen. So we, he talks about it in, in the scriptures that the earth will wobble like a drunken man. And that's a great picture of how you see a top as it starts to slow down, wobbling back and forth, and the earth is a ball that has been spun. So we see this, uh, this fact that God's saying it's going to happen. And it's kind of fun reading these things and saying, God, you knew these things way back then? You know, the people had no idea, this idea of the world slowing down and, and having earthquakes, but yet over and over again, God prophesied there's going to be great earthquakes. There's going to be earthquakes in diverse places. There's going to be huge problems and that are going on through the changes of the weather and climate. And we're seeing all of these things starting to happen. And yet part of it is no, normal, natural. It's not man-made like they want to talk to. It's about God saying it was going to happen because he understood that things were going to slow down, things were going to collapse. And then it says, after the earthquake, Verse 21, then shall I call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. So he sends his earthquake that's going to help stop this army. Then he sends a sword. And in Revelation, it talks about the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth to, to end the battle. So God is going to send, and we're seeing even this part being fulfilled. We're seeing more earthquakes. We're seeing swords, you know, being armies and battles going on. You know, I've studied on various times when I've come across this, you know, there are wars everywhere in our world right now depending on how you want to define war, but there are skirmishes and people dying and, and more than a thousand people all over this world in battles. We're, and we're seeing families being split. Now, Jesus said he came to bring a sword into families. He didn't say that when we got saved everything was going to be all, all good with our families. Oftentimes families split 
apart because of Christ. Because there's certain ones that just aren't going to accept him and say, nope, I'm not, I'm not accepting that. And we see this splitting apart during the, during the first century, especially with the Jewish people. They would get saved, and the husband or wife, whoever didn't get saved, would end up divorcing the other one and saying, I can't, I can't follow you into this Christian thing. And it's believed that Paul, we know he had a wife because he was part of the Sanhedrin, but after he got saved, it's believed that his wife left him because of his Christianity. How dare he stop being a Pharisee and a Jew? Uh, the other end, of people say that she died, but it very makes much sense that she just left him and said, I can't, I'm not going to follow you into this craziness that you've gotten involved in. It is very obvious if somebody is single, they can get up and move and do whatever God wants them without having to consider anybody. They can spend all their time in the church if they want, just like the, the widow that uh, was in the temple when Jesus was dedicated and said, he says that she spent her whole day there. If she had been married, there wouldn't be no way she could have spent her whole day in the temple and you know it is a great thing when you're not married you do have this ability to devote your entire life to God to to go away at days if God says go do something you just say okay God fine you know pick up and go but when you have a wife and a family you've got to take in some consideration number one convincing them that they're supposed to go with you put Jesus first and then our our wives and family or you know spouse and family second it's a better relationship all in the in the long run uh, because you've got something higher to live for than just one another. Uh, it's hard to do. And, it's, and there's jealousy sometimes in it. Now, it used to be that pastors got a little overboard in many cases and sacrificed their family for their ministry. And that's not good either, because you can't sacrifice your family to minister, which is why Paul said it's better to be single, because then you can spend all your time ministering to the, to the church and, and the body of Christ and not have to worry about you know, what's going on with my family? Which is one of the reasons so many times uh, pastors' kids are some of the worst kids out there because, number one, they're trying to get attention. And number two, usually they're not really any worse than any other kids except for the fact that people look at them and says, that's the pastor's kid. They're supposed to be perfect. They're just being kids. It's not their fault that they were born into a family where the dad's decided to be a pastor. And they're just being kids. You, know, you go out there and, and the kids are playing in the baptistry water, you know, splashing it around, and you get really mad at the pastor's kid because you go, you should really know better. You're not supposed to be here, and you just kind of chew out the other kids you know, because the pastor's kid's supposed to be perfect, a perfect kid. You know, and that's been my experience. Pastor's kids are usually not any worse, but the expectation is so high for them that sometimes they get to a very rebellious place because we're tired of being you know, set on this high standard that, we're, that we can't live up to, and you're too critical of them. So pastor's kids oftentimes, and then also you get the father not paying attention to his kids because he's so busy ministering to the church, they act up sometimes trying to get attention. You know, so we look at this and say, you know, part of it is what is our expectation with people? Which is why I say all the time, if you're looking at me to be a perfect person as a pastor, you're, you're fooling yourself because it's not going to be true. And pastors oftentimes are set up on a, pat, on a big pedestal saying, you know, they've got it all together. And then when they get mad at somebody, it's like, how can they do that? You know, you're the pastor. Well, the pastor's human. You know, the deacons are human. Everybody in the church is human. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to fail people. And if our expectation is that they're perfect, we're going to get failed pretty quick. We're going to get disillusioned very quickly. Because the only one that's perfect is Jesus. Now, we can walk closer to God and we can be closer to perfection, but we're still going to make mistakes, all of us. Every single person is going to make mistakes. And we need to be able to understand, even in the church, people are going to make mistakes. Are you saying Daniel wasn't perfect? Well, Daniel wasn't perfect. Obviously, he wasn't perfect. But whatever it was that they were looking for, he wasn't, wasn't big enough for them to find. He was close to perfect. He was about as close to perfect as you could probably picture. Enoch apparently got pretty close to perfect because God took him home. Elijah got pretty close to perfect. God took him home. You know, if we get close enough to perfect, God will take us home early. Uh, there's only two people that have had that happen that we know of, so uh, don't be expecting it anytime soon. That would be something to strive for. It would be something to strive for. God, I want to be so close to you that you just said, take me home one day. You know, uh, it would be kind of interesting. You know, just. 
go 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 out go go out for a walk and never go out for a walk and never come home because you went you went home to God. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, sword would be against again brother against brother, and Satan is trying to divide families. He's trying to divide peoples. He's trying to divide churches. That's his goal: is to divide everybody and keep them divided, because in unity. Their strength. When you have, when you're called to something above your own personal goals, there's unity. The church, as you were talking about Sunday morning and Sunday school, is a group that is out to evangelize the world. We have a goal that's greater than all of our differences that should be able to join us together, and we're the body of Christ joined together for Him, and be able to minister, to edify, to build up. When we try to do our own thing, you know, our purpose is not God's purpose. This all sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> our purposes are not God's purposes. And yet, how many times do we live in our purposes? God, I want to do what is best for me. And God is saying, I want you to do what's best for the kingdom, whatever that might be. And, uh, you know, what is the price i watched that movie do you believe and is very powerful when he says what does the cross demand the cross demands our entire life be put on it and sacrificed to him most of us don't live that way including myself most of us don't live in a place where we say god i want you to be number one and most important and i want to put all of my desires on the back burner and live for you the good news is when we live for him, he oftentimes gives us our desires in the process. But it's not us trying to obtain those desires. We're seeking him, and he gives us the desires of our heart in the process. Yeah. And it's, everything about God's word is so often is kind of contradictory. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. And when you serve people, God exalts you in the process. When you, you know, the weak are the strong because we're living in his strength. You know, we give up our desires for God's desires and he gives us our desires. <laughs> it's an amazing thing when you look at what God does over and over and over again. What is our greatest desire? My greatest desire is to be in heaven and be well rewarded. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's times when I wonder if it's going to happen, but my goal is to have him say those words. The last thing I want to hear on, uh, when I stand before him is, well, come on in by my grace. <laughs> now, that's better than the alternative. Yeah. But I really want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. You know, some people are going to get there literally, you know, well, come on in. You've got my grace. It's all you've got is my grace. And that would be a sad statement. Now, if, granted, being in heaven is better than the alternative of being in hell. But, you know, our goal should be to hear, well done. Now, Revelation tells us that Jesus has a special name that is known just between him and us, a pet name. You know, I hope it's something like faithful, you know, uh, servant, you know, whatever it might be. The last thing I want to be called is, you know, well, you were always in trouble. <laughs> Uh, it's in it's in when he in when he's talking to the churches, when he talks in the churches, he says, "I have a name for you. I know your name." Um, and so we look at this, and God has got a special relationship with each one of us. He's going to have a name for us, and he's going to say, "I know you." Kind of like any any married couple that are in love usually have pet names for each other that they use. And, you know, we're his bride. He's going to have some kind of special name that he's going to use for us. And those names usually have something to do with your relationship with them. And I, don't, and I honestly don't think he's going to have something like, you know, you, you were a troublemaker. I think he'll have some good name for us. But, you know, if it has something to do with us, some of us probably would deserve the name troublemaker or always in trouble or whatever. But I think God will have a, a better name for us than that because it will be by grace. Verse 22, And I plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him with his, and upon his bands and upon many people that are on, with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone, 
pretty bad, pretty bad uh, work against this. And when God, when Jesus comes to stop this battle, it's going to be over quickly. Now how uh, it looks like fire and brimstone and hail and, and his word are going to be part of it. But he's also going to speak and it's going to be over. And an earthquake. I mean, it's going to be a pretty bad situation that's going on. And he says, I'm going to come. And it just shows his great power. Now, if it's literal, it's literal. Otherwise, it's showing his great power. He has power to do all these things to destroy. Fire and brimstone is what destroyed the Sodom and Gomorrah in that entire valley. Then how God's going to do that? I don't know. He's done it before. He can do it again. Hailstone, we talked about in, in Judges, how he's, more men were killed by the hailstones than were, were killed by the, by the children of Israel in that one battle. And probably big hailstones like this, maybe not two or three, you know, 100, 200 pounds ones, but big enough to hurt and kill. And, uh, you know, as you said, you know, it doesn't take much. You know, a softball-sized hailstone falling from, from up in the sky is going to go through your roof or make huge dents in metal. It wouldn't take much. And then we get these big ones <laughs> that are going to cause problems. And then it says in verse 23, And I will magnify and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they will know that I am God. That statement is Ezekiel's favorite statement. You know, they will know that I am God when I move against them in my fury. And It'll go beyond anything that we see. And, you know, one of the things I think about for us is how many times do we as Christians recognize God's hand in something, and if you tell people, they'll, they won't recognize God's hand? You know, a miracle happens to you. Your, 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 your rent money comes in at just the last moment before you're ready to be kicked out. You, know, you're, you get this money to pay for some bill or some great miraculous thing happens, and you see the hands of, hand of God in it. And the world will go, oh, you were just very fortunate. You were lucky. You know, uh, and the world will put down just about everything that happens and just you know, not give God the glory. And yet, when God moves in these things, he's going to say, it's going to be so miraculous you won't be able to know anything but it's God's hand. You know, an earthquake that shakes the entire mountains, a hailstones falling, brimstone that's falling, and the army being defeated the entire world's army being defeated, that will be a miracle of God. And he's going to step down out of the clouds and, and rule. That'll be a miracle of God. Everybody will know that this is God. There won't be a question in their mind that it's him. And very important for us as Christians to recognize when God moves, we need to give him the, the glory for moving and recognize that it's him that does it. It's not just a whole bunch of... You know, wow, look at the good luck I had this last month. You know, it's, wow, look what God is doing. Look how God is moving. Look at how he's healed. And I love it when God heals. You know, does he use doctors and medicine? Sometimes. But you know, God moves sometimes and heals in a miraculous way. And it's him. And even if he heals through doctors, it's still him. He gave them the skills and the abilities to do it. And we need to be able to say, God, thank you. I've shared with you the man who, got, who was on the heart transplant list. He was in the top 10 in the state, and all of a sudden he asked for prayer and he got healed. And the, the Sunday after he got healed, he come running around the church. He was running up and down the platform and around the church, literally running in the church because he was so excited. He no longer needed a heart. The doctor had verified it. He'd had a great miracle in his life. And, you know, there were people around that were saying, well, what a coincidence, you were, you were so lucky. No, we prayed for this, and he's off the heart transplant list. Now, don't ever neglect to give God thanks for what he does. He does things in our life, and he deserves to be thanked for what he does. Well, this is true. If you don't believe in God, that's... But you know, the sad thing is so many Christians who won't acknowledge that, it, that God did it. You know, and again, not all Christians necessarily believe in God. Some people are just Christian in name. And uh, God is wanting to do great things for us. And he's mostly limited by our lack of faith, our lack of desire to even ask. You know, when he talked to the one man and Jesus said, you know, do you believe that I can do this? And he says, yes, I do. Help me with my unbelief. 
That should be our prayer. God, I know that you can do this, but help me with my unbelief. I'm having a hard time believing. And I think we'd see some great things happening by God if we would just start stepping out. Put some feet on our, on our faith and step out and do something for God. Whatever it might be. And who, what that is, I don't know. But you know, God has a plan for each one of us to reach out and touch people. He has a plan for us to put our faith into action. And that's what James says. Faith without actions is dead. You can't, prove that, you can't prove that you have faith without doing something to prove that you have faith. And oftentimes we sit back and we don't go out and do things. You know, we don't go out and say, God, I want to step out in faith. I want to see what you can do. And when we step out by faith and watch God work, we might be a George Mueller spending much more money than you have. In, in our day's time, it would be something like a million dollars a month that he was spending. You know, he didn't have that kind of money, and yet he went out and did it. Be somebody like Corey Tenboom, who's just being faithful to God and helping to save people's lives. Be, be somebody who may have to give your life for God so that God can be exalted. You know, we see those people. Uh, Elliot was that. He gave his life so that the people would be ministered to later on. Now, did he know what he was doing? No, he just knew he was giving his life for God. You know, do we know the consequences for things we do when we step out in faith? Absolutely not. It may take us to martyrdom. It may take us to death. It may take us to being a person that the history look, books will look on and say, look what this faithful person did. And how many of us Think that would ever happen to us? George Mueller didn't think it was going to happen to him that he was going to be recognized by everybody. D.L. Moody didn't think he was going to be recognized by everybody. I am sure that when Billy Graham started, he didn't think he was going to be recognized by, by the world. He just started preaching the gospel. And he started out in small tents and ch small churches. No way did he probably ever believe he would be speaking in front of millions of people. We don't know what God has in store for us. It might be martyrdom. It might be death. It might be greatness for him. But he is saying, step out. Step out in faith. Put feet on your, on, your, on your faith. And step out and do something. Whatever it might be. And we want to keep that in mind. And we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we had to look at your word. Lord, the big battle is coming. And Lord, you knew that it was coming. You prophesied that it's coming. And you will deliver. Help us to understand that that is true of all of our lives, that you know what's coming our way, you have a plan for what's coming our way, and that you will deliver from that activity that comes our way. Lord, we pray that people will come to you and to, to serve you, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.